Oftentimes when we think about history and historical events, we have a tendency to simplify things, to dull the edges, to flatten out the contours and the nuance in favor of making sweeping generalizations. And this phenomenon seems to become even more pronounced the further back in history we go. It's not really our fault. It seems to be human nature to do this, a method that we use to more easily understand what happened in the past. But just like the world we live in today, the past was not so black and white. For me, this gray area is what makes history so fascinating. It's this muddiness that brings the past to life. I appreciate the challenge of having to sort through the nuance in order to gain a fuller understanding of history. That's when things get really interesting. When it comes to the Salem Witch Trials, our generalizations often lead us to a fairly straightforward conclusion. The witch hysteria happened because a collection of overzealous Puritans made a series of dubious accusations against innocent people that raged out of control. On some level, of course, this is exactly what happened. But we also recognize that there is far more to the story than just that. There are countless contours and a variety of twists and turns that fill out this broad generalization and help us get closer to understanding the dynamic truth behind what actually happened. The story of Mary Warren is one example of this. Mary was a 20-year-old indentured servant who worked on the farm that John and Elizabeth Proctor leased on the outskirts of Salem, in what we now know as Peabody, Massachusetts. And Mary's experiences during the early days of the witch hysteria provides us with some valuable insight into the tormented and often duplicitous minds of those involved in these tragic events. The Proctors were a relatively prosperous family. John had immigrated to Ipswich, Massachusetts from England with his family when he was a young boy, and his father had flourished in the New World. John continued to build upon his legacy, eventually moving to Salem in 1666 to operate a farm and establish a tavern, which his wife and older daughters ran. Elizabeth was John's third wife. The two were married in Salem in 1674. John's previous two wives had died in childbirth or shortly thereafter. Over the course of his lifetime, John fathered as many as 18 children with his three wives. Elizabeth, whose maiden name was Bassett, was the granddaughter of a Quaker woman who was known in her community as a healer. It was perhaps because of this status that Elizabeth's grandmother endured her own witchcraft accusations, which she was acquitted from decades earlier. But in the midst of the dark and frigid early months of 1692, strange things were happening in Salem, the beginnings of events that we continue to try to understand today.
Sometime in March, shortly after Betty Paris, Abigail Williams, Elizabeth Hubbard, and Anne Putnam Jr. began experiencing strange fits and declared themselves to be afflicted by witches, Mary Warren joined in, claiming to be experiencing fits of her own and professing to see the specter of the Proctor's neighbor, Giles Gorey. Upon hearing this news, however, John Proctor was having none of it. He was a skeptic of the witch hysteria from the start and didn't think much of the so-called afflicted girls, openly declaring that they were faking their behavior. And once he learned that his servant Mary had fallen prey to these antics too, he did not take it well. It was said that he forced Mary to work at her spinning wheel, and that he might have even beaten her, or at the very least threatened to beat her as punishment for her claims of affliction. Whatever threats or actions John Proctor took seemed to have their desired effect, at least at first. Mary Warren's condition suddenly improved, and by the beginning of April, she pinned a note to the meeting house door asking for prayers of thanks. In that note, which Reverend Samuel Paris read to his congregation, Mary wrote that, quote, the afflicted persons did but dissemble, end quote. It seemed that Mary had now taken John Proctor's position on the matter, openly declaring to the community that she believed the other afflicted girls to be faking their conditions. Perhaps predictably, the afflicted girls did not take too kindly to Mary's words and lashed out against her. Would Mary soon find herself accused of witchcraft as well? Soon, Mary began experiencing fits once more. Perhaps her condition was a consequence of her growing fear and anxiety. She knew that her master, John Proctor, would be angry at her claims of affliction, but she must have also known that she had angered the other girls who claimed to be afflicted with her letter on the meeting house door. Perhaps Mary felt that her safest course of action at this point was to go on the offensive. Whatever the case, Elizabeth Proctor and soon her husband John both found themselves accused of witchcraft, at first by Abigail Williams, but soon after by many others as well. While Mary was not among these first accusers against the Proctors, she seemed to seize the opportunity that the accusations against them presented and quickly joined in. Mary claimed that she had been tricked by the Proctors into signing the Devil's Book, an action which essentially meant that she had been fooled into selling her soul. On April 11, a raucous examination took place before the magistrates, where many of those who claimed to be afflicted, including Abigail Williams, Anne Putnam Jr., Elizabeth Hubbard, Mercy Lewis, John Indian, and several others, displayed visible signs of distress in the presence of the proctors. Many of those who claimed to be afflicted during the witch hysteria often engaged in similar displays, either because they were genuinely frightened or because they felt it might bolster their claims against the accused. Toward the end of this examination, both Abigail Williams and Anne Putnam Jr. 
two preteen girls attempted to strike 42-year-old Elizabeth Proctor, presumably because they had been driven to by their afflictions. Reverend Paris, who was taking notes at the meeting, wrote the following about what he had witnessed that day. Quote, When Abigail's hand came near, it opened, whereas it was made into a fist before, and came down exceedingly lightly as it drew near to said Proctor. The Reverend then wrote that once Abigail's fingers made light contact with Elizabeth Proctor's face, the girl immediately cried out that her fingers were burning. Both Proctors would eventually be arrested and indicted for wickedly and feloniously engaging in witchcraft against Mary Warren and the others. Despite pleading to the court as well as a petition from various members of the community attesting to the couple's innocence, John was convicted and executed later that summer. Elizabeth, who was pregnant at the time, received a stay of execution and was eventually released when the hysteria passed later that fall. The Proctor's case is similar to many of the other cases that took place in Salem during that tragic year. But taking a closer look at the role that Mary Warren played in their eventual conviction is instructive in helping us understand, at least in part, the nuanced circumstances of one of the so-called afflicted persons. In Arthur Miller's The Crucible, the fictionalized version of Mary Warren is characterized as weak and unstable. She finds herself unable to stand up against the other afflicted girls, despite knowing that they're lying, and is instead drawn into their web of deceit. Perhaps there is some truth to this representation of Mary. As a servant indentured to the proctors, she essentially possessed no power at all even when it came to how she lived her own life. It's certainly plausible to believe that Mary might have been drawn into this unusual situation and then found it impossible to extract herself from it. Moreover, evidence suggests that John Proctor physically abused Mary, or at the very least made abusive threats against her. Because of this, it's safe to say that Mary's existence in the Proctor household was fraught and distressing to say the least. What might that abuse have led Mary to do when the opportunity presented itself? Or what if Mary, like so many others in Salem that winter, had been entirely transfixed by the girls who claimed to be afflicted? One can imagine the unprecedented well of nervous excitement that must have accompanied the remarkable news about the so-called afflicted girls. Perhaps upon learning more about these afflictions, Mary suffered from conversion disorder, or what we used to call mass hysteria, causing her to experience similar symptoms of her own. It's certainly plausible that a young woman in Mary Warren's position could find herself entirely taken in by such frightening circumstances, particularly given the fact that she, like the other girls who claimed affliction, had so regularly experienced the fiery sermons of Reverend Paris 
which must have stoked their own fears about the devil and what he was capable of doing. Or perhaps Mary Warren was envious of the attention that the afflicted girls had received over the last few weeks and longed to capture some of that empathy for herself. After all, being a psychologically and potentially physically abused indentured servant put Mary in a very unenviable position within the community. Maybe she wanted to seize upon this wholly unique moment to gain something of her own that she never thought possible. Of course, Mary left no record of what she was thinking at the time. Today, we are left only to speculate about the reasons behind Mary Warren's twisting and evolving experiences during the early days of the witch hysteria in Salem. Still, her story provides us with some valuable insight about what exactly affliction meant for the so-called victims of witchcraft. Mary's story gives us a clear example of just how transitory these afflictions could be. And while we will never know exactly what happened, the answer is likely not so black and white. Did Mary Warren's experiences derive from trauma, fear, or conversion disorder? Or was it an attempt at self-preservation, a desperate plea for attention, or a desire to seek retribution against her oppressors? Perhaps it was some combination of these things, or maybe it was something else entirely. Whatever the case, the sad and tragic tale of Mary Warren gives us much to think about, as well as a clear example of just how fraught and gray this moment in history was. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.